Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Every Australian should have access to the opportunities and choices they need to lead full and healthy lives. Committed to playing a role in Indigenous justice is this week's podcast guest, Thelma Schwartz. Thelma is the Principal Legal Officer at Quivels, Q-I-F-V-L-S, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisation providing legal and non-legal support services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander survivors of family violence and sexual assault. Thelma identifies as Torres Strait Islander heritage alongside her German, Samoan and Papua New Guinean heritage. Thelma has extensive practice experiences working with and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the provision of legal services in rural, regional and remote Queensland in her representation of adults and youths from both victim and defendant legal practice uh, perspectives across multiple courts. Stay tuned as Thelma takes us through her experience working in the justice system as an Indigenous woman and what she believes are the services and supports needed for Aboriginal and Indigenous communities. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Thelma Schwartz. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sam. Thanks for having me, everyone. No worries. We also have with me today Talitha. Talitha, thanks for joining us. Oh, so welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what we'll do, I think it's a good, a good way to start is to give us a bit of background from your culture and your heritage and the, the country of where you come from and the, the lands of which you're, you and your family are from. Thank you for that. Obviously, with my surname, you'll all hear that it's very Germanic and that is a reflection of my father and my father's people. And through my father, we trace our heritage through to Samoa and Queen Emma, who came across and founded the coffee plantations in Rabaul and oh. built that empire in Rabaul uh, before the war came. So that is my father's lineage, and through him, obviously, Queen Emma was a trailblazer in her own right, building an empire in a very male-dominated world at that time. And then my family went through the period of war, and it came to New Guinea and being dispossessed because they were Germanic and moved off their properties in Rabaul mm. and transported and finally living in Medang, which is where my father was born. On my mother's side, which is very interesting in its own self, uh, it reflects the journey of people of the sea. My mother was born in Sedea, um, a very small island in Millen Bay province, 
And for those of you who are aware of the history of Papua New Guinea, Millen Bay was a pivotal area in relation to World War II. My mother and my grandfather, my grandfather particularly, my Bubu Bada, which in our language means grandfather, um, mm-hmm. the male, at the very young and tender age of 18 years of age, he was a fuzzy wuzzy angel assigned to the American corps that were based in and around Millenbay province. And he saw war as a very young man. Through my mother's lineage, we trace family heritage through to the Torres Strait, through to Fiji, Polynesia. There is Malay Indian. We were sea people. We were warriors. And they settled ultimately in the Millenbay province. Uh, so my heritage is a heritage of people who, with tremendous courage, mastered the seas, came through and traded as warriors and then as traders. Uh, so that yeah. really is a nutshell of my heritage. And there is, people laugh at me, it's like a bit of a dog's breakfast. <laughs> There's also the Celtic in there, which I'm very proud of, my Celtic heritage, my German heritage, my Samoan and the English-Australian. Yeah. So I'm made up of many different peoples and I honour and uh, pay respect to those peoples who have made me who I am ultimately today. How important has that culture been to you growing up, having the connection to the, the different cultures that, you, that make uh, up your family and, and the lineage of where they're from? But knowing that and knowing the stories and the history, has that helped shape who you are today? When I was very young... I found it quite alienating and I think this might resonate for people who walk in two worlds because I walked in two worlds and you're not part of one world even though you have a name that is European origin but my skin is brown so I didn't quite fit and that journey resonated with me finding a place where do I really fit throughout my very early life going through school becoming a young lawyer Where do I fit? Because I don't fit here. Working as a private commercial litigator for over seven and a half years and still finding that wasn't my fit. But what grounded me, as you will find with many people who have a cultural background, is my connection to my culture and really understanding where I fit in their eyes in the grander scheme of things. And having that has kept me true to my true north and able to do the work that I'm now able to do and to speak my truth at this pivotal point in time. So it has been probably the most important stabilising aspect, even though when I was younger it was quite isolating and confronting and I'm so proud to see our younger people connecting and understanding their family, irrespective from where you're from. I think understanding your journey, where have we all come from? Because we're all here on Australia. We all have different cultural mixes and identities and just tracking that. Mm-hmm. And I think I've just found out because we did AncestryDNA.com thing that in my mix, it must be on my father's side, um, there is also French and European Jewish. So I, I've been wow. quite startled, um, you know, doing that little DNA kit. But, you know, pleasantly surprised that, you know, there's so much more to learn and it is a journey, but it grounds you and I'm grateful for the grounding. For sure. Thelma, I'd like to dive in a little bit deeper and find out more about the amazing work that you do. And I'd love to know about your journey to become a lawyer and you're currently working with the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service. Can you tell us a little bit about 
how you got into law in the first place and your journey from starting to where you are now? Very good question. And there's a bit of trauma with that. So there is a bit of a trauma warning if there are sensitivities to people. Unfortunately, I grew up in a domestic violence household. That was something that my two younger sisters and I experienced and I watched through a child's eye how that impacted my mother, both physically, emotionally and psychologically. I was so lost. Uh, I felt like I had no control and I did not want that for me because I had a perception this must be the only way it is for women. This is going to be my life. And I didn't want that and I didn't want that for my sisters. So I made a very early decision, being very inspired by satellite TV at the time in Madang, watching the old reruns of Rumpole of the Bailey, for example. I made a decision that I wanted to be like Rumpole. And what struck me about Rumpole and resonated with, with me was his ability to speak, his ability to speak his truth without fear nor favour. And I wanted that. So from a young age, I committed to, I want to go commit my school, finish my school, and I need to get out of this. And I need to take my mother and my sisters out of this. This is not right. And that was a continuous struggle. Obviously, when we came to Australia, um, English was not my first language. Learning to speak um, fluent English and be able to articulate concepts in the English vernacular was a challenge. And I struggled at school. So when young people speak to me, oh, you've got it easy. No, I didn't. I actually had those barriers. And I do understand when people talk about those barriers in education and learning. But I was committed to keep going um, because I couldn't fathom a life that I was seeing and witnessing and what my sisters and I went through. Mm. So that was the main driver and I started achieving and I started learning and learning and reading and I kept going and I completed year 12 with very high grades and I, I won the law award in year 12. I won a scholarship um, which helpfully paid a lot of my tuition, my book fees and I commenced my law degree at the Northern Territory University. And at the completion of that law degree, as things go, because of the empowerment that comes with knowledge, I witnessed the deterioration, the further deterioration of my, ma- my parents' marriage, culminating in probably one of the last fights that I remember between my parents, where I was just about to commence my articles at Clerkship in Alice Springs with Central Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service. And having to step in between my father and my mother and to say to my father, I'm sorry, but you can't act like that. I will not tolerate you speaking to my mother in that way anymore. I will not tolerate you hitting her. I can't do this anymore and I will report you. That was a pivotal time and what followed that after I left to go to Alice Springs to commence my articles was my parents' marriage collapsed and they got divorced. And that then led to me starting a journey of healing with both my mother and my sisters, as well as my father, because he couldn't identify why his behaviours were wrong. So that then led me through to working in Alice Springs. I was very privileged. I had the privilege of working with the Supreme Court Justice, Justice Stephen Bailey, who passed away many years ago. Um, And I do reminisce about my time with Judge quite quite warmly. And the footpath uh, and the pathways that he embedded in me and my journey really commitment to social justice reform for peoples who otherwise are not seen 
and otherwise are not heard, irrespective of race and culture. So I did the seven and a half years in commercial practice, realised that that was not my fit, and decided to take the journey uh, as a criminal defence lawyer with the Aboriginal Trust and Islander Legal Service at the front line. And now I'm very privileged to be in the position of being the Principal Legal Officer of the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service, working for and with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and supporting victims of uh, serious violence to be heard and to be seen. What an amazing journey. Earlier this morning we sat on stage as a part of the panel and the overarching theme there was what does justice look like and I found it really interesting you stood up and you spoke and one of the first things you mentioned was the fact that you were going to reframe the question. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what made you come up with that really amazing, insightful speech? For me, I thought it was important to start from a... I wanted to start from a very different lens and I wanted to highlight to the audience um, that we're so used to looking at things through a one-dimensional lens and that what we need to do is to really take the blinkers off so that our eyes can see, our minds can hear, but more importantly, our hearts can feel. And that was the reason behind the reframing of that because I thought, well, people are just going to jump right into it, but... What needs to occur is an understanding and context of um, how we've got to the current position and why it's important to look back. Because I know I get a lot of comments from people who'll say, well, that's all just come and gone. Why can't we move forward? We can't truly move forward without fully understanding and appreciating what's gone before and the lessons that have come out from that, taking those lessons and moving it forward to inform policy, practice and procedure that better informs how we actually achieve outcomes. So that's why I flipped it. thought I'd be a bit of a devil's advocate this morning. <laughs> and, and being very mindful that we were the first cab off the rank at about 8.30 this morning mm. and having people, I wanted to wake them up a bit, so um, I hope I got their attention. I think you certainly did that and more. The audience in the room was very engaged and we had obviously a high number of people tuning in virtually this morning to the Stop Domestic Violence Conference and I think the feedback from everyone virtually and in person has been incredible in regards to your presentation and, and your words that I found were spoken so genuinely and with such conviction and compassion and calmness. I really admire that about uh, your presentation this morning. And I'm you. sure I speak on behalf of everyone. If you could change one thing and one thing only in the justice system at this time um, with your experience and the cases that you're working on currently, what would that be? That is a very, very good question and probably one that's very hard to answer. I think the current lens of the justice system has always unfortunately been because it's tied to the fundamental basis of our rule of law, to focus on the perpetrator and how the perpetrator moves through and is treated by the system. What I'd like to see fundamentally with, with its flow-on effects is a real shift to get that balance so that victims' rights, responses are heard and they're clearly articulated because currently the system does not cater for that. And the responses coming through the system, you will see any given day in the media, media reports about how there's a perception of failure to really hear the voices of victims and to get justice, whatever justice may look like. So there needs to be a shift in how we 
look at responses, moving away from a one-dimensional approach to it. It is multifaceted and realising that justice is not only served within our criminal legal system or our court systems, justice can be served outside and being open to building that into the frameworks. Absolutely. And I guess I would describe you as someone that's a bit of a trailblazer in your arena. For those coming before you or those that are looking up to you and would love to follow in your footsteps, what kind of advice would you give to women and men in your communities that would like to study to, I guess, represent justice from a a multidimensional view and lens as well? Well, I'm always uh, quite uneasy as being described as a trailblazer and I'm very lucky to be in the position that I am and having the opportunities that I've had. And the work that I've done with many people across the system, whether you're an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person or not, what I really reinforce, um, especially for young Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, young people and children, is that if you have a dream, you follow that dream. Don't lose your agency and let someone else take that dream away from you. There are supports there for you. You need to really believe in yourself because around you there is your community and people who will support you. Never give up. Never feel squashed by the pressure around you and stay true to who you are inside and follow your true north. Now, I know that sounds really quite out there, but, you know, these have been my guiding principles and I've known how lonely it can be um, walking between two worlds and not being seen and not being valued. But we all have dreams, we all have goals, we all have ambitions that are common irrespective of where we come from. Do not ever give in and keep going. And I think that probably demonstrates to people who are listening to this, I'm quite a tenacious person Mm. and I'll keep going. Even if you have a setback, you pick yourself up You dust yourself off, you learn from why you had that fall and you keep going. You keep evolving and growing. Let nothing stand in your way to achieve what it is you want to achieve and let no one diminish what it is you've set your mind on. Brilliant. I love that. I feel like I'm hogging the microphone here. Do you have any questions, Sam? That's okay. (laughs) You're doing a good job. And Thelma, it's been really interesting hearing that background and also the interesting work you're up to. As we look to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, what do you feel like, what are the key challenges uh, in these communities as it relates to where we're failing, where, where we need to do a better job? So this really comes back with respect to looking at and understanding social determinants and what makes us more vulnerable is the lack of availability of housing. We know that we have an overcrowded overcrowding that occurs within our communities. The lack of, I'd say, infrastructure build and commitment and investment in our regional remote communities. The lack of real job opportunities. The CDP scheme, with respect, is not a real job opportunity. Mm. Poverty, substance misuse and abuse, domestic and family violence triggers mental health issues, issues we've heard this morning as well on our panel in relation to disability. Now, we know um, from June Oscar's report that there is at least, on average, um, you know, 45% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have some form of disability. Mm. So that really impacts their connection with the system. We know also about the 
racial structures that are at play here, the intersections with racism. And I know when I start bringing racism into, into the discussion, it can make people very uneasy. And it's not to make you uneasy, but it's to start looking at, with a critical eye, why our systems fail and what we need to do to progress forward. This is about moving forward and acknowledging where those failures are and how we actually overcome those failures and barriers. Do you feel like that ingrained, that British culture that's been imposed on our civilizations in the last hundred years or so has been a bit of an impact on that? Yes, I do. Um, What is missing from this with respect is looking and viewing and mapping and impacting through a human rights lens. And we know with the evolution of human rights concepts and jurisprudence, we have these overarching universal rights um, that are uh, captured within our Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We have here in Queensland, I'm very proud of, the enactment of our our own Human Rights Act, and I believe there are some jurisdictions in Australia that have similar legislation. So it really is shifting the focus because we've gone from a period uh, when European settlers, or some people say those who came to occupy the lands, came. They came with a certain purview. This was about occupation and squashing out or not recognising those who were here Mm. for thousands of years before Mm. and diminishing that. So we're talking about our, the basis of Australia, what our foundations are, and building in now moving forward the fact that we have evolved, we are a mature nation of people. We all share very similar goals, ambitions, and what we want and desire are very similar. And looking at this and approaching it through a human rights lens with a reflection that right at the heart of it recognises and embeds the respect of every person's inherent dignity and worth irrespective of race, culture, ability or disability. And fundamental to that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is the recognition and embedment of our right to self-determination, our right to take back what was taken from us, our right to connect to our culture, our lands, our stories, our songlines, and to keep that culture flowing. We're one of the most luckiest countries in the world given that we have a living, thriving ancient culture still here. We all have a responsibility to keep that culture thriving and growing. When you look especially to the Indigenous communities in rural and remote Australia, well, how do we need to adjust the system? What do we need to take into consideration? What extra resources are required in order to try and give them much better outcomes for our Indigenous people? Consistent with this concept of self-determination and consistent with what we have now in our National Partnership Agreement on Closing the Gap, is tied to priority reform area number two, which is the recognition, the support and the build of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations. Because within our organisations, of which the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Prevention Legal Service is one, as well as our fellow 16 other Family Violence Prevention Legal Services across Australia Mm. and our national forum, we have been calling, um, as of other community-controlled organisations, to be supported to do the work that we need to do because our organisations are built with and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We have the solutions for our people. And within that context, when we talk about the um, responding to domestic and family violence, I can say that the articulation of self-determination and empowerment ultimately 
can be seen quite clearly in a recent report uh, that our FEPLSs and our national forum has done with Change the Record, which is Pathways to Safety, which really clearly articulates why we need to really invest and support our Aboriginal community-controlled organisations in relation to preferencing our work on the ground with other Aboriginal community-controlled organisations um, who are there in community because we are based on the ground. We provide services on the ground. Whereas some other organisations, due to the inconsistency of funding and the stretch of funding, can only visit not very often. They're not in towns and communities as often as we are. They change all the time. That's correct. They change all the time. Whereas we're the consistent face. We're the consistent one who has built the relationships and the trust with community. So it's very important that we recognise that. And I understand given the nature of conflict, that we will need to have other service providers in there. But what I'm asking for is that the preferencing for working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, peoples and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations is that we're preference first with support from our non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community sector members um, so that we can deal with and holistically respond uh, to our clients uh, and community issues. The line of work you do, I assume it can be significantly rewarding on, on some aspects but then others extremely frustrating just describe to it what it's like to work in in the sector and and be on the front line with these aboriginal and torres strait islander communities i think i re- reflected this morning on a case i had with a young aboriginal child in court for stealing and the basis for his stealing was that there was no food in the house and what he was taking from the local store were food items to feed his younger siblings. And that for me was probably one of those touching moments that has stayed with me for a very long time. I've never forgotten it. And I was reminded of him this morning out of the blue. And what it highlights in that particular dynamic was that the stealing was brought about, the taking of food items was brought about due to the family violence within that household, due to the drinking and the gambling and there was no money for food, and he was the one left with the responsibility for his younger ones to feed them. And when he came into contact with that system and he spoke with me, my heart broke, and I saw all of the intersections and I saw a child that was on the cusp of coming into contact with the child protection system, already in contact with the youth justice system, And knowing the family dynamic, I knew that both parents were in contact with the criminal justice system. And that particular moment, I lamented the loss of our children uh, to a system that takes, gobbles them up, and then entrenches them into a cycle of ongoing imprisonment and criminalisation. So that was uh, something I've never moved from. And I've had, um, over my criminal law practice experience, I've represented many people, young people, older people, across many different charges, including murder, and I've seen what lies beneath those social determinants, family violence being a key one, especially the work I've done with women in this field, and then what happens to their children when they come into contact with the system and where their children go. And there have been moments where I have felt deep sorrow and grief given that I am dealing and have dealt with grandparents, parents and children. And all I felt was that I was merely 
cycling people through a sausage factory machine and I wasn't affecting change and I didn't want to be that anymore. I didn't want to be a part of that system and I made a very concerted decision even though, you know, the criminal law practice um, had grown and we were doing amazing things. That was not where I wanted to be. I commend people who are at the front line of that practice. It is hard work. But where I am now with the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service, I'm able to look at things holistically. I'm able to say in my advocacy, well, hang on a minute, there is too much focus on the siloed approach. What is required is a whole-of-government approach and moving away from siloing and bringing things together because there are so many factors that flow in. The law and justice is but one point. We're part of a bigger spectrum, of which health is one. You know, the other services that impact housing, um, employment, mm. they all impact and flow in. And it really is about that holistic model to respond better to people's needs. Now, if I see that in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I think there is some crossover applicability to people who also face similar disadvantage where there are so many different needs that need to be addressed. And normally with my client base, with Quivels, what brings them into contact with the legal system is their pressing non-legal needs. And the responses we deliver, consistent with our other family violence prevention legal services, is not to ignore the non-legal needs but to address those non-legal needs and to link them with the appropriate service providers to provide case planning and safety planning. So this particular individual does not fall through the cracks. Mm. This particular individual does not come back into contact with that criminal legal system. And more importantly, children aren't then brought into those systems, whether it's the youth justice system or the child protection system. That for me is rewarding. And I'm not detracting from the value of work I did as a criminal defence lawyer. That was in itself rewarding. And it opened my eyes to the system the systemic barriers, the systemic racism, um, not within just the criminal law but within the youth justice system and the child protection system particularly. So interesting. Let's, um, I guess, intertwined in our conversations today, we have been looking back in order to move forward. So why don't we revert our focus and let's talk about what's in store for you for 2022, Thelma, in terms of work and not just work, there's more aspects to yourself than what you do, but what's on your radar for next year? Ooh, lots of things. Um, I am a very proud mum. I'm a proud mum to my, my boy, Jared, who is 20 at the moment. So one of the most pressing things on my radar is his 21st birthday, which is <laughs> happening in March. So I am frantically pulling together a 21st birthday celebration for my boy. How fun. Um, he's my only child and he has walked this journey with me, the highs and the lows, as well as my mum and my sisters. So we are in frantic birthday planning mode <laughs> uh, along with the list of demands for Christmas presents and I'm, I'm trying to say to him, hang on, what is going to be the 21st birthday gift? So that brings me family is my focus and you know when I get to meet people I always say I'm a mum I'm a daughter I'm a sister I'm a friend I'm a colleague and I'm a lawyer those are my drivers and what keeps me grounded and centered and the work that I'm doing with Quiffles we have been very uh, lucky to receive additional funding to expand our footprint here in Brisbane 
We will be um, servicing both the northern region of Brisbane, the Sunshine Coast area, coupled with the southern, uh, southern region of Brisbane, the Gold Coast region and beyond, um, with the ability now to stretch out into Ipswich, which is very, very exciting. So I'm looking forward to that build and getting our services out there to those most vulnerable and in need um, peoples. We've also been very fortunate to receive funding to open up an office in our Mackay area and region and offer services in that particular region. Uh, we have this year been very fortunate to receive funding through the Torres Strait Regional Authority to provide services on Thursday Island, the Outer Islands, and we have now offices on Bamaga and Thursday Island. And I was very grateful to be able to travel with my team to, to provide services on the Outer Island um, circuit, which takes us now, Quiffles is now a state practice other than the southwest corner, which is serviced by the AFL-SSQ, our sister family violence um, legal mm -hmm. service here in Queensland. We service right up to the international border with Papua New Guinea. And we have more growth on the table for next year. We're building um, who we are. Uh, people just see us and think we're just a legal service. Oh, no, we're more than just a legal service. We provide services that address both legal and non-legal needs. We have case management embedded within our legal service. So we're very different from what one would think as a traditional law practice. And I am also building our Love Bites training. My team and I are trained Love Bites facilitators. So we're creating programs that will meet the specific needs of each of our distinct communities. So that's something I'm very much looking forward to with my team. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out and about. I love being out on country and being with people and sitting and sharing stories and listening. You know, that active listening component uh, is so very important to me because when people share their stories with you, it's a privilege. It's not a right um, to be invited into that space. And then I have the, the, the privilege of taking that story forward and sharing it in a wider context to help understanding and raise awareness. Um, so that is generally what's on the cards, but 21st birthday party celebrations are right in front and centre at the moment. Um, <laughs> that's what's happening right now. I love it. It sounds so exciting. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thelma, do you have any more questions, Sam? Thelma, if people want to get in touch with you, how how's the best? what's the best way for them to touch base? Is there a website or something where they can reach out? The Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service has a website that you can reach out. We have a dedicated help desk email, um, of which I also monitor as well. So um, you're more than welcome to reach out through that way. I do have a presence on LinkedIn. So if you find me on LinkedIn, by all means, um, send me a message. More than happy to have a chat and to keep the conversations going. You mentioned before how it is a privilege to hear people's stories and that's certainly the way uh, we feel about this conversation and thank you for sharing your story with, with our listeners and we appreciate your time and we really wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much and I'm wishing everyone a lovely holiday season. Stay safe, enjoy the break and thank you once again. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn.
Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.